So welcome to Rush Hour number 46. I am with Dr. E. Michael Jones. This is the third time I am interviewing him, and I'm very happy to have him here with me today. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you for having me back again. Great. I just wanted to let you know I was doing some bicep curls with your books earlier. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to go to the gym again. So the You've heard about the book that you can't put, put down. Right. These are the books you can't pick up. So the first book of yours that I read, and we talked about this almost a year ago, was let me get my screen a little bit bigger so people can see was libido Dom dominandi and me coming out of my state of sin this was an important book that i had to read and that was the first talk that we had and then i met you in south bend and it was great to meet you and we talked some more and now dr jones i wanted to talk to you about this book of yours which took me a while to read it is the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Um, this was probably the longest book that I have ever read. And I know there's a lot of things going on in the world today. We have this kind of fake play going on that the elites are using uh, to assert their power over us. Um, but I just wanted to, is it okay with you if we talk about your book? Because I think that's sure. going to matter more. And maybe you can come on again in the future. <clears throat> But before sure. we go on, how is life in South Bend now in light of this fake plague? We're doing fine. We're doing fine. No one, uh, the, 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 there was really no lockdown here. Uh, the, um, there's hardly any uh, serious consequences of this thing. The first uh, COVID death was uh, an 84-year-old man who had pneumonia, went into the hospital, got tested, and then counted as a COVID death, uh, even though he probably would have died anyway. So uh, the, what we're, we're much different than Michigan, which has a much more draconian lockdown uh, because uh, of the political circumstances there. So I think the whole thing revolves around political circumstances. Democrats seem to get the coronavirus uh, to a much larger degree than Republicans for some reason or other. Or it may be because the Democrats want to uh, make this as bad as possible to keep Donald Trump from getting reelected. That's another possibility. But uh, we're the people, I think, have decided that it's over. And they're coming out and uh, the politicians are trying to either run to the front of the parade and say they were involved in that all along or they're trying to make some type of last gasp attempt to impose regulations uh, that are the equivalent of closing the barn door after the horse is out. And we're going to have a chance to get to those uh, um, aspects soon. So I actually printed out a huge list of questions. I haven't talked to you in nine months, so I have accumulated a lot of questions, but I know you don't have a lot right. of time, so I'm just going to get straight into it. So when I was coming up as a pickup artist, I was, you know, traveling the world. I saw myself as some kind of Don Juan. Uh, when I was doing that and I started to understand the sexual revolution and I was looking at the names of all the feminists, the ones that pushed a lot of these sexual liberation ideas, I couldn't help but notice most of them were Jewish and to me, I didn't. I wasn't uh, woke on that matter. I didn't know why. What what a coincidence it was. And then, as time went on, I started to see that the group behind homosexuality tended to be Jewish. Uh, third world immigration to the United States tended to be Jewish. Now we have the transgender issue. Uh, you know, this general move away from God. It always seemed to have Jewish names. Jewish leaders in front of it. So I can ask you, why are Jews seemingly leading these really uh, revolutionary movements? Yeah, that's. I think I came across the same uh, idea, uh, and I kept thinking, uh, my, my awakening came pretty much around 2003 with the neoconservative takeover of American foreign policy at that point and the invasion of Iraq, which didn't benefit Americans at all, but it did benefit Israel. And so I began to think, 
what's going on here? Let's look at the neoconservatives. And I looked at a guy like Irving Kristol, who was the father of neoconservatism. And I tried to come up with a political explanation. And I realized you didn't, you, you really, it didn't explain it. He was now known as a conservative. When he was younger, he was a Trotskyite. And yet there was a certain continuity here. And the continuity was being Jewish. But what did that mean? Because they'll never give you a straight answer about what it means. Is it, is it an ethnic group? Is it a race? Is it a religion? And so I traced it back to uh, the foot of the cross. Uh, at this point, you had the Jewish people who had been prepared for a Messiah, and then the Messiah came, and then they had to make up their minds whether they're going to accept him or reject him. And the, the, the Jews who did accept the Messiah became known as Christians, and that's what they are to this day. And that is the straight line in human history because these people are the children of Moses. St. John makes that very clear. And But then there are the Jews who rejected Jesus Christ, and they are known as Jews. Well, what did that mean? What do you mean rejecting Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus Christ is the Logos. And the Logos is the order of the universe. They got the St. John got that word from Greek philosophy. It made a lot of things like three columns of words, uh, equivalents in English. I just did a book called Logos Rising where I talk about that. But uh, Jesus Christ was the Logos, the Logos incarnate. And they, they rejected him. They killed him. Well, what does it mean when you reject the Logos? That means you're rejecting rationality. You're rejecting the order of the universe. And what do you call people who reject also the political order, any type of order, the biological order, you name it, the order of sexuality, you name it. And what do you call people who reject those orders? You call them revolutionaries. And that's what the Jews became. After the rejection of Christ, within 70 years, they had become revolutionaries. They rose up against the Roman Empire. And at that point, Rome retaliated and the temple was destroyed. And at that point, the Jew had no way of uh, fulfilling his covenant with Moses. And a whole new type of, type of Judaism came into existence called the synagogue, the Judaism of the Talmud and the synagogue. But the one thing that remained constant was this commitment to revolutionary behavior. And 60 years later, it happened again with Simon Bar Kokhba. And this point, the Romans retaliated once more and they destroyed Jerusalem and the Jews were dispersed. And this is the only identity, that, the, the, the identity that kept them together for 2000 years. It was this rebellion against this, this rebellion against Logos that we're, we're committed to it. This is our identity. This is what we stand for. Uh, symbolized best by the, the destruction, the murder of Christ. Uh, but they'll even talk about that as well. Sarah Silverman, who goes, thinks she's a comedian, but is very definitely Jewish, said that uh, she, she gave a little spiel once where she said she'd kill Christ again if she had the chance. They have this permanent rejection of Logos, and that became their identity. It's not racial. It's not as if they have some type of DNA that makes them act in a certain way, because DA, DNA doesn't make you act. DNA will... Give, give you a beard or a, a scraggly beard or a, a, a nose like this or a nose like that, but it doesn't tell you how to act, how to act. That's logos. That's reason. And they have chosen their identity by rejecting that and becoming revolutionaries. So one thing I can ask you is why did the Jews at the time of Christ reject him when uh, Christ was revealed in their scriptures, in their books, Isaiah, all of the prophets, they said the, Savior is coming, and then Christ came, and it fit what the prophecies were to a T. So what could be going through, I guess, the Pharisees or the Jews at the time who rejected Christ? Here is your Savior promise who has been, uh, who has been promised to you, and to have him in the flesh, to reject him. Why do you think that they, that they, that they did that? And I guess they did it in such a way that has had consequences for them for the 2000 years that followed. Yeah, well, they had always had trouble following God's commands. The history of uh, the Hebrew people is a history of rebellion against God and his covenant. Uh, and they had become uh, carnal is the word that used, you know, 
uh, used to describe them. They were interested in the things of this world, uh, and they had convinced themselves that they were special, and that they were special because of their DNA. They were they were the original racists in this regard. And it comes out in the debate that Jesus has with them uh, in the Gospel of St. John, where they, they the Jews say to Jesus, we're the, we're the sperm of Abraham. We're the seed of Abraham. And we're special. And you better make sure you understand that we're special. So don't talk to us that way. And Jesus just says, you know, God doesn't need your DNA. God could turn rocks into people if he wanted to. He, a, a, and you're not special. And the only way you're going to be special is if you follow the word of God. And you're not doing that. And so they wanted a different type of Messiah. They wanted the Messiah on their terms. So something like David, maybe, you know, a powerful military leader who was going to overthrow the Roman yoke. And, and they got their Messiah. The, the rabbis said that Simon Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. And if you were a Jew and you didn't go along with that, you would get expelled. You got expelled. So they wanted the Messiah on their terms. And uh, that's the problem. And it's been the problem ever since. Because they've always ended up choosing some type of Messiah that's going to give them the religion and flatter their racial pride. And it ends up being a disaster. And the, the book describes a number of those messiahs, false messiahs. Why do you think, I mean, God must have known that the Jews would have rejected him. Why do you think God picked such a stubborn, prideful, and carnal people to bring his word to the world. <laughs> Part of this is the mind of God, which I cannot fathom. My mind, my my line is not long enough to plumb those depths. Why did God choose? How odd of God to choose the Jews is how uh, Ogden Nash. Because it, it seems to be the worst people. Or maybe it's a testament to God's glory that, hey, I did pick the worst people and, you know, you were still able to find me and my grace was able to come to you. I, I don't know. Well, if you, if you look at St. Peter, for example, I mean, he denied Christ three times, uh, but he, he repented and came back in the end. So you're, God is always dealing with people who have a natural propensity to sin. Uh, but he always knows that in spite of the evil there's going to be some good that will come of it. So he refers to this as a remnant. There's always going to be a remnant. Even if most of them go astray, there's going to be a remnant. And that remnant is worth the effort. Uh, that's, I think that's the story of human history. It's certainly the story of Joseph. I've talked about this before, about Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, after they sold him into slavery, it turned out that was necessary to feed the Israel when the famine struck. And he said, the evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. So it, over, on the, over the long haul, in spite of all of their defection, in spite of all their idolatry, they, they produced a remnant that was faithful. And that was the house of David. And that eventually came and brought the Messiah. I mean, th think, of, think of David, for example. I mean, it was the house of David that Jesus came from. And he was not only an adulterer, he murdered the husband of the woman he slept with. So bad guy, did bad things. But he came back and said he was sorrow. And that's just human history. It's just the way it goes. So if Jews deny Christ, um, they don't follow him, they don't follow the Word of God, the Logos, uh, a book that you wrote that we're, that we're going to talk about soon— who or what are they following? Where are they getting their moral guidance from? Where are they getting their motivation or drive to, as they think that they're doing, healing the world? Where is this coming from? Where is this, I guess, spirit coming from? Well, Jesus said, your father is Satan. Uh, Jesus would be called an anti-Semite by the ADL for saying that. Um <laughs> And, and right-wing, too. <laughs> the, the gospel of St. John would be denounced as anti-Semitic hate literature. And it has been. And there's no question about that. So that's he said it that way. That's the way he put it. Uh, Karl Marx said they worshipped uh, money. Uh, what, what, they've, what they've done is they've fashioned an idol uh, out of themselves. 
Moses, Moses Hess at one point in Rome and Jerusalem said that the Jewish people is going to be its own Messiah. Uh, this is the idol that they fashioned for themselves, and they fashioned a plan, okay, called Tikkun Olam, which is called the healing of the world. It comes from uh, the, the agnostic, uh, Kabbalistic tradition of Jewish thought. And uh, Tikkun Olam is what motivates these people. I mean, you talk to, you read Amy Dean, who talks about uh, how the Jews were behind gay marriage. It was published in a magazine called Tikkun, which is short for Tikkun Olam. So the Jew, down your culture, and destroying the moral fabric of the nation that has taken him in, he thinks he's doing your, these people a favor because he's bringing about healing, healing of the world, liberation, all of the, this type of stuff. He's convinced himself of that. And he's also convinced himself, if you object, well, you're a bad person. Wait a minute, stop. I don't want you to wreck my culture. I don't want you to create this parody of marriage. And as soon as you say something like that, and then you say that the Jews are involved, you're an anti-Semite, you're a bad person, and this whole defensive reaction starts all over again. It becomes very difficult to talk to people like this. One quote, uh, a saint in both the Orthodox and the Catholic Church is St. John Chrysostom. And you quote him in your book on page 81. And uh, to the YouTube censors, I am reading from a saint, so please don't ban me. <clears throat> he says, the Jews live for their bellies. They grasp for the things of this world. Their condition is no better than that of pigs or goats because of their wanton ways and excessive gluttony. Now, I'm guessing he wrote this about 1,500 years ago. Would you say that the Jews that we have to live with, have they changed since then? Or has he described basically the kind of attitude no. that we have to face? No, we're talking about a form here. A form does not change. And the form of the Jewish people took place, as I said, at the foot of the cross, where they said to Jesus, you know, if you come down uh, from the cross, we'll accept you as the Messiah. The form was created when the Jewish people said, uh, his blood be on us and our children. The form, this form was created when the Jewish people said, chose Barabbas, who was a revolutionary instead of Jesus Christ. This creates the identity of this people and that identity has not changed from then uh, to this day. So uh, Chrysostom is writing, uh, from Antioch, uh, in the middle of the, toward the end of the, uh, fourth century, Antioch was a, a hotbed of heresy, uh, the Arian heresy, uh, which said that Jesus Christ was not God. And it, it, it was abetted and pursued and promoted by the Jews. Once again, they were involved in a revolutionary movement. We don't tend not to think of it this way, but that's what it was. That's what it was because it was impossible to set, uh, once Constantine made the church the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire, it was impossible to se separate religion and politics. And these were the people that were trying to overthrow the Catholic Church at that time. And that's what Chrysostom is talking about. He's talking about the danger. He was talking to Christians mainly who were guilty of Judaizing. In other words, they, they, they repudiated the freedom of the gospel. They wanted to return to the vomit of Judaism. There's another, that's Bernard of, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux used to talk about that. Go back to religion, go back to a religion of prosperity, where you, if you pray to God, he's going to give you a BMW, or you go to their services and the services are these musical extravaganzas that just can't, the, the Catholic services can't compete here uh, because they're reverent and there's not, uh, you know, this type of uh, entertainment that the Jewish become. This is religion. It's, it's full of sensuality. It, it, it appeals to your ego. It builds you up. It, it's positive. None of this crucifixion type of stuff. And that's precisely what um, Chrysostom was complaining about, because the Christians were defecting because they, they, found, they found it difficult. 
because it is difficult. It was easier to go along with the, the Jewish ideas because they were simplified. And one of the simplified ideas was Arianism, which is basically saying Jesus Christ was a creature, just like you and me. He wasn't the son of God. That's too damn complicated, this Trinity stuff. Just stick with us. We'll tell you what you want to hear. This is the Jewish religion at that time that he was complaining about. Now, you mentioned earlier Sarah Silverman, a, quote, comedian uh, who makes nasty jokes. And, uh, you know, I guess if you reject Christ, um, okay, why did you get small there, Dr. Jones? Okay. But if you reject Christ, chances are you will hate him, too. And um, do you think this hatred today comes in the form of divide-and-conquer tactics that Jews do on Christians? Maybe they had a hand in, say, jeez, oh, maybe, maybe they had a hand in the Reformation or other tactics. Are, are you seeing an active Jewish hand in dividing Christians now? Yes, yes. The biggest uh, problem of our day uh, is the document Nostra Aetate uh, that was passed by the Second Vatican Council. Uh, this document says it doesn't, re the document does not repudiate church teaching. It affirms uh, that the Jews killed Christ, but it affirms it in a peculiar way, which is to say not all Jews at the time of Christ were responsible for his death. It's a polite way of saying some Jews were responsible, and we've already gone over the, well, who these Jews are. It wasn't the Blessed Mother. It was the Jews who rejected Christ. They were responsible for his death. So the document doesn't uh, say what it, they say it is, but it's been interpreted as saying a complete repudiation of everything that the church ever said about the Jews uh, and an apology for saying it and uh, hope in inauguration of a new era of collaboration between Christians and Jews. That was the feeling in 1965 when the document was passed. And what happened was 50 years of divide and conquer, uh, 50 years of Catholic-Jewish dialogue that led to nothing but the erosion of the Catholic position and a, a complete silence on Jewish subversion in our society. The other thing that happened uh, it's related to this in 1965 is that the Jews broke the Hollywood production code. Uh, they did it with a movie called The Pawnbroker, which is a kind of Holocaust porn film, uh, bare, uh, bare Breasts, uh, but it bare breasts in a concentration camp. So how can anyone object to this? Uh, that uh, code was put in place by Catholics in 1933, uh, because the Catholics were the only group that had the cultural cohesion and courage to uh, threaten Hollywood with a boycott if they didn't get in line. And they, the Jews got in line for 31 years. They, they followed that code. And then by 65, they had the power enough to break it because the Catholics had been weakened by this ridiculous project known as Catholic Jewish Dialogue. It was a failed experiment. It's, it's failed for 50 years. During this 50 years, the Jews have silenced uh, the Catholic objection to, uh, let's say, obscenity and pornography. We're flooded with pornography. I don't have to tell people who are watching you about this. They, they, they've talked about it themselves, their addiction to pornography. This is all because of this catastrophic decision uh, to get involved in Catholic-Jewish dialogue. Uh, to this day, catastrophic. Now, I think that people who don't believe in in heaven try to create a heaven on on earth, and you talked about that a while ago. Uh, you know, so Jews are still waiting for their savior, and so I guess they they know that when they die, if they die right now, they're going to um, Hades, right? They're going to Abraham's bosom to just hang out. Now, by their efforts, uh, mis misguided efforts, to create a heaven on earth today to experience whatever joy and pleasure they want, 
what consequences do we have to face? Do what what do we have to endure by the by the Jewish groups saying, no, no, we're since there is no heaven for us, we're gonna make heaven here and live in harmony or whatever ideas that they push onto us. Well, one of the most catastrophic heavens on earth was Bolshevism. When this group of uh, Jews, uh, Jewish revolutionaries, the, the quintessence of the Jewish revolutionary spirit, uh, took over Russia, deposed the czar, and imposed this communist dictatorship on the Christian people of Russia. This happened in November of 1917. In December of 1917, Lenin created a, a group called the Special Committee. Uh, I don't know what it is in, in Russian. Uh, the Special Committee to uh, Prevent Sabotage and Counter-Revolution. And the initials came to mean the Cheka. The Cheka was a secret police that basically imposed terror on the entire Russian nation. Now, the Cheka was made up primarily of Jews. A few Latvians, maybe, but it was mostly Jews. Everybody knows this now. Salo Baron, the, uh, the uh, Jewish uh, historian uh, writing about this, the Soviet Union, said uh, that if, if a Russian were unfortunate enough to get captured by the Cheka, arrested by the Cheka, he would end up being tortured by, by Jews. Because Jews, Russians would not do this to other Russians. Russian Christians, because they were Christians, would not do it to other Christians. But Jews had no problem doing this in, in inaugurating a reign of terror because, precisely because it was going to bring about heaven on earth, which is the main Jewish temptation. That's precisely what Tikkun Olam is supposed to bring about, heaven on earth. And heaven on earth uh, ended up uh, slaughtering how many people, how many millions of Russians died in order to create Lenin's heaven on earth. Do you see some modern Christians adopt this heaven on earth mentality, fall for this trick uh, to put their faith in the world more than, say, the... Uh, whether Catholic faith or or the Orthodox faith teaches us, do, do you see a more of a carnal Christian nowadays? Yes. First of all, the, the, the Achilles heel of the Catholic Church is Americanism. Uh, the Catholics were immigrants largely who came over in the 19th century from countries like Ireland and Germany, and I am a product of that. I'm half Irish and half German, and the Irish brought with them a, a large inferiority complex because of the culture they had come from. I've talked about this a lot with uh, my Irish friends on their podcasts. Uh, these people wanted to fit in. And this was a time when they admired the WASP ruling class in America because they, had, they dressed well and they were just well-educated. They went to schools like Harvard and so on and so forth. And so as a result, they were uh, willing to trim the gospel to suit the American experience. And the Pope, uh, Pope Leo XIII, didn't like it. He wrote an encyclical condemning Americanism uh, called Testem Benevolentiae. came out in the 1890s, but it didn't stop anybody. And it's continued to this day. So we had sexual Americanism during the 60s and 70s, which led to the catastrophe of the abuse crisis. And now we have uh, medical Americanism where the church is just rolling over and playing dead and accepting all of these violations of the separation of church and state uh, that the, the government is imposing on him in the name of fighting this, this, uh, this phantom virus. I'm not saying that there aren't people dying from it, but I'm saying that the majority of the measures they're taking have no effect on it and are unnecessary for the majority of the population. That's one example. The other example is the Protestant or Protestant brothers, uh, especially the evangelicals, have this complete uh, weakness, uh, no immunity whatsoever to this disease, this intellectual disease called Christian Zionism, which is a bad theology uh, that was created by the Schofield Bible, which was promoted by Jews uh, to keep these evangelicals uh, uh, stupid uh, and uh, in line with their Jewish masters. 
So between the two of those groups, you've got a, a society where no one's really opposing the Jewish uh, wrecking ball that has been wrecking our culture uh, for decades now. No opposition. Yeah, actually, it seems to me that the modern world itself is littered with all these false gods and idols and other traps, like we mentioned, often led by Jews. Um, you know, if I say right now, uh, and I pray not to fall away, fall back into that pit that I was in chasing after girls, it's or something else, it seems like there's going to be a Jewish movement to catch me, to say, oh, hey, Rush, here, here's a good way to feed your pleasures or greed. Um, would you argue that modernity itself is Jewish? Yes. This, this is a book uh, by uh, Yuri Schleskine, the, the Jewish Century, where he said exactly the same thing. Modernity is Jewish. The Jews basically took, uh, because of the power they had to control the discourse, because they owned the means of communications. They, they over the course of the 20th century, determined the course of the discussion and pushed it in a, di a direction that was more and more secular, uh, more and more uh, working to the overthrow of the moral order, working for things like sexual liberation. And they also took over institutions. Harvard University is a Jewish institution. Most people don't think about that about it that way. Uh, the Atlantic Monthly uh, is a Jewish magazine, although it used to be a WASP magazine, you know, the Boston Brahmin magazine of record. Uh, but now it's run by Jews. And these Jews then insinuate their values uh, into the dominant culture. So they're not saying, I want you to convert to Judaism. That's not the way they work. They say, you're a bad person if you oppose gay marriage. Or you're a bad person if you oppose abortion. Uh, and after a while, I begin to realize, well, this is the Jewish religion. It's, a, it's supporting all of these uh, subversive liberation movements, uh, which are all covert forms of control. So that is that is how they took over. That it is modernity was uh, uh, taken over by the Jews, and they determine now uh, the course of discourse because of that. Now you you mentioned the coronavirus, and when I look at the response to it, what do I see? Well, I see churches are closed. I see that they're keeping us uh, in this kind of state of social isolation, make people afraid of it. I mean, I go to the park and people are afraid of me, like I have the plague and they run away from me, it seems. And I don't think it's because of how I look. Um, you see small businesses, uh, they're, they're going out of business, but Walmart is doing well and Amazon is doing well. Um and all, all the while, people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are getting richer and richer. Now, when all this was happening, I was thinking, man, is there a Jewish hand in this? Because I didn't, it wasn't obvious to me um, how this furthers their interests or goals. But what do you see? Who is kind of leading the way? Because you did mention, you did mention Harvard, and it seems that whatever Harvard says, everyone's like, oh yeah, Harvard, Harvard, and just, you know, who they are controlled by. But do you see the Jewish revolutionary spirit in the government, the institutional response to coronavirus? Well, I mean, uh, one of the worst places and the, uh, the attorney general of Michigan is a uh, Jewish lesbian. Uh, and why is it, the, is that coincidence? Well, no, it's not coincidence. Because when you have an extraordinary type of situation, you need more prudence than normal to, because you're not functioning according to custom anymore or law. You're flying by the seat of your pants. And if there's one thing that uh, lesbians don't have, uh, and Jewish lesbians don't have, it's a sense of prudence because prudence is a form of logos and you're in rebellion against logos. You're a revolutionary and you're going to make bad decisions. And so as a result, we have uh, a basically a, a revolutionary situation in Michigan where the people, uh, uh, the attorney general and the governor perceive their own people as the enemy. 
it's not just, well, let's put it this way. These people didn't vote for us, so we're going to go after them and we're going to lock them down. If, if you're talking about, um, the, the, now let me, let me back up here a minute because I wrote another book and the other book is called uh, Barren Metal, which is a history of capitalism as the conflict between labor and usury. And in many ways, it's the companion volume to the, to the uh, Jewish revolutionary spirit because it talks about the other side of the Jewish revolution, and that is capitalism, uh, especially usury. Uh, and especially a group like the Rockefeller, uh, I'm sorry, the Rothschild family, uh, which dominated finance in Europe in the 19th century. They've, the, the Jewish financier and the Jewish revolutionary have walked hand in hand. It was Balzac who saw Heinrich Heine walking down the street arm in arm with Jacob, uh, James Rothschild. Uh, voila, tout l'esprit juif, he said. Uh, you had Jacob Schiff and, and Trotsky. You had Parvus, uh, the, the, the rich capitalist, uh, the man who put Lenin on the train. These, this is a collaborative effort here. And once they get achieve what they want, then it's, the revolutionaries are in power. And when the re revolutionaries are in power, they are going to prevent any type of group, the rise of any type of group that will threaten their power. So they become the, in many ways, the anti-revolutionaries at that point. And so you have a, a, a situation like uh, Occupy Wall Street, which was a genuine grassroots protest against economic exploitation and usury in particular, uh, in particular student loans that was shut down by the oligarchs who control Wall Street, which are groups like Goldman Sachs. So it depends on what period of history you're talking about and it depends on who has the upper hand uh, on how you can talk about these uh, revolutionary movements. So to get back again to the coronavirus, there is two professors from Harvard writing in the Atlantic in which they're explaining to you how the COVID virus is really a continuation of the great internet battle of 2019 which was the battle over hate speech, which was basically the ADL going after people like me and saying I'm a bad person. Now, this is, this is Harvard University. This is the, the place where the oligarchs go to, uh, go to school. This is where they, they do their thinking, and they're saying this in the Atlantic. Well, I think they're telling the truth here. I think that the COVID virus is an extension of what happened in 2019. I think it's an admission that they lost control, the oligarchs lost control of the narrative in 2019 and the battle over the internet, and now they're determined to regain control of the narrative by threatening us all with uh, dying if we don't do what they say. Or they say, we are a killer because we want to go outside, because right. we want to be a human being. So one question I have for you that has confused me is how do we make sense of the fact that the Jews on the left, they tend to be atheists? Uh, they, I don't know of any God that they follow. You know, they, they are the ones that mostly push the sexual revolution, the race-based stuff, anti-family, homosexuality. You know, the shock, they, they uh, harness the shock troops. They make the gays rise up and fight and so on. And then you have the Jews on the right. And they seem to profess a a God, which God that is, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, they push the Zionism, subservience to it, to Israel. And they seem to raise up the shock troops, like you mentioned, the Christian Zionists who go to APAC every year where the Israeli flags outnumber the U.S. flags. Now, both of these groups, the secular Jews on the left, and the Zionist Jews on the right, they profess, I guess, to be Jews, but they're sometimes they battle e each other. Sometimes they fight each 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 other in the universities. They they don't agree. So would you say they are both still being controlled by this rejection of the logos? I mean, or are they would you say they're different factions or what is going on there how can we make sense that yeah they're both jews but they seem not to be on the same page all the time every every successful revolution 
leads to a civil war. So you're go- always going to have the, these coalitions splitting apart and then fighting each other. Uh, that's simply the law, the law of history. Uh, it happened in the Russian Revolution. It's going to happen in it happened in the conservative movement after the fall of communism. Uh, it happened in uh, it, it happens all the time. I'm saying that if you go back far enough, you'll find that there was, uh, let's say, to the pale of the settlement in the 19th century, when the Jewish revolutionary spirit started to revive. Okay, it grew up out of the the shtetl. The shtetl came into being because of the the the, the creating the groups like the Hasidim had abandoned uh, reason. They just withdrew from the world in the aftermath of the failed messiahship of Shabbatai Zevi. And th- there were two forces at work there. There were Jews who were. There were Jews who who were uh, moved by the nationalist movement because they were Jews and they felt they were an oppressed minority in the Russian Empire, and there were Jews who f- uh, emphasized more the 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 socialist aspect of it and uh, the idea that uh, they needed some type of revolutionary change uh, right away and a create a world of internationalism, and so you would had. A man like Trotsky, who said his ethnicity was a social democrat, had nothing to do, did not believe in God, and hated the idea of Jewish particularism, became one of the great forces in the Russian Revolution. You had a guy like uh, Herzl, Theodore Herzl, coming out of the same tradition, uh, but emphasizing the national part. And then you have a guy like uh, Vladimir Yabotinsky who's a kind of, nobody talks about him anymore, but he's like both at the same time. So if you, I just, you know, sometimes you think about this and you think, is what I said really out there? Is this like, uh, people accuse me, is this a figment of my imagination? Jones is an anti-Semite. Is this, he's always talking about Jews. It's all in his mind. Is it in my mind or is it not? You know, is there a reality out there? And I, I, Ten years after I do the book, I'm I'm uh, in contact with a guy from Armenia who wants me to go to Armenia and talk about the situation there. And I start looking into the 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 genocide, the Armenian genocide. Don't know anything about it other than you know what most people know. And the stitch find out the situation is basically Armenians pointing the fingers at Turks and accusing them of the genocide and the Turks pointing their fingers back at the Armenians and saying, uh, you people deserved it because you were traitors and you rose up against the, uh, the, the Ottoman Empire at a vulnerable moment, and, and, uh, and that's the stalemate that exists. If you look back, uh, if you take it a few steps back, it turns out that both the Armenians, uh, who formed groups like the, the Dashnaks and the Hunchaks, and the Young Turks, and the Donma, who were the descendants of Shabbatai Zevi, and the Bolsheviks uh, in Russia, all had common roots in this revolutionary movement called the Narodnaya Volia, which was the first Jewish terrorist organization in the world. And so what you saw is, this is the spirit. I, I suddenly thought, this is what resolves this issue. It's not just my mind. It's actually out there. And it, it allowed me to understand the Armenian genocide in a way that would reconcile that stalemate and also uh, show that it played a crucial role in that event. And, and nobody really talks about that. So it is part, it's part of reality. That's what I've, I've concluded. It's not me. It's not my. It's not my figment of my imagination. There is this spirit out there, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and it does explain history, why history took the course that it did. And I can't tell you how lately, especially the past half half year, how many lies I am spotting being pushed by the media. Those with those with power. It's constant now. It's constant. And at first I, th- I was thinking, is it just me too? Like there's just so many lies and a lot of, unfortunately, 
uh, at least half the um, the American population are buying it. And then when you call out one of these lies, you know, they hit you with the labels. They hit you with you're a racist, you're a homophobe. And one label that I think both of us have gotten is uh, anti-Semite, you know, because we dare to have conversations like this, uh, um, to read books that are not approved by the major New York City publishing houses. We're an anti-Semite. Now, is it, what would you say is the definition? Is there, is it a made up term? Did they just make it up to use as a hammer upon those who criticize them? Or is there a real thing? Yes, there is a real thing. And the, the word, the word was created by Wilhelm Marr in 1871. Anti-Semite. Now maybe somebody used it before, but he's the guy who really made it popular. A book he wrote called Der Sieg des Judentums über das Germanentums. Now he wanted, he didn't like religion. He was a, a, a uh, revolutionary from 1848. He felt the Jews uh, in Hamburg had betrayed the revolution. He wanted another way of talking about it. And he said, yes, it's, it's racial. And he, it, it, that also conformed to the biological thinking of the day. So anti-Semitism is basically someone who believes that Jews are biologically determined to act in the bad way that they act. That is not uh, what I believe. I don't think, I don't know anybody. I mean, maybe there's still people who believe that, but that is what that term is. That is not what the Catholic church has ever taught because it has no meaning. If you take it back far enough, let's say to the time of the gospel, when everybody had the same DNA and yet everybody's divided over uh, Jesus Christ. So over this period of time, largely because of the second world war, the term anti-Semite underwent some type of transformation. So uh, it used to mean an anti-Semite was someone who didn't like Jews. And now anti-Semite is a term for people whom Jews don't like. So what it means is some Jew, when you're called an anti-Semite, it means that some Jew somewhere does not like what you said, cannot refute what you said, is not going to leave you alone because of what you said. And so therefore he's going to try to pin this label on you to basically end the discussion and end your career uh, as well. That's what it's become. Now you were put on a list by the ADL. Uh, you were put on a list. I, I don't remember exactly what the headline was, but I think they tried to say, are you were pushing dangerous ideas, hate speech and so on. Hate At speech. At the same time, they put you on a list. The media gets people in a froth for look at these people. They they hate everything. And, you know, you see that uh, we're in an unstable time when people are going towards violence and things like that. Do you think that the ADL put a like a bullseye on you as if to say to its crazy people followers, hey, look at this guy. This is a bad guy. Go and get get him. Yeah, I think that's that's the whole point of this. Uh, uh, the the Southern Poverty Law Center does the same thing, and there was somebody who uh, they actually have a hate map. Uh, both groups have this hate map, and I show up on this hate map. Now there were people who take these people seriously, and a guy went to Washington and and uh, took out a gun and started shooting people at the Family Research Center. Now that it seems to me is the promotion of hate speech. So you're you're promoting the very thing that you say. Yeah, uh, you're fighting. Uh, we know that this is a crooked game. We know that hate speech is a completely empty category. This is a completely empty category of the mind. And all it means is basically uh, speech that the ADL does not like. They are the creators of the term hate speech. They're talking about hate speech as if it's a category of reality. It's not a category of reality. It does not exist in reality. It exists in the mind of the ADL. And if you start using that term, what you're telling me is that your mind has been captured by those people. This does not correspond to reality. The Jewish revolutionary spirit does correspond to reality. That's, that's a reality that I discovered was applicable to uh, something I didn't even know about until I got into it. And I suddenly realized the real cause of the Armenian genocide, for example, was the fact that so many of these groups had their morals corrupted by becoming Jewish terrorists, even when they were Christians. 
Armenians are nominally Christians, but what they adopted was the values of Jewish terrorists, and the Armenian people had to play a terrible toll, a terrible price because of what they did. Do you think if me and you produce an anti-America map and then put the offices and addresses of ADL, their officers, executives, do you think there'd be any kind of outrage or they would just let us do it the way that they do it now? <laughs> no, no, this is not because you're not you're not a serious person and I'm not a serious person. <laughs> uh, you have to have lots of money and media connections behind you. But I mean, look, they, they did this to, to me already. They blamed me for the Poway shootings. You know, they blamed me for the Pittsburgh shootings. This is I'm saying, no, no, you got it wrong, fellas. I always say no one has the right to harm the Jew. Uh, when you suppress the speech, uh, which is what your main job is on the Internet, uh, people get a sense of hopelessness. They get a sense nobody's listening. Nobody cares what I say. The situation is so bad, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to pick up a gun. I'm going to start shooting people. So I said, you know, in many more than one video, I pointed my finger at the camera and I said, you're responsible. The ADL is responsible for these killings because you're the ones who are suppressing this speech that is driving people to violence. It's very simple. Don't blame me. You wrote in your book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, quote, the final collapse of Jewish resistance to Logos uh, will take place when they have reached the pinnacle of worldly power. At no time in the past 2,000 years have Jews had more power than now, end quote. It seems to me that their power is total, uh, full-spectrum power, institutions, corporations, media, Hollywood, everything, everything, even science uh, with their link to Harvard. Um, should we lose hope? That, you know, it's their world now, that uh, we're just their slaves, their, if not physical slave, their ideological slaves, just fall, just consume their media, participate in the sin they promote. Is it kind of hopeless, as you say, their power is so high? What, what, what can be done now? We don't have to do anything. God is in charge of this. And uh, God has a way of bringing about the collapse of the mighty, uh, uh, as we say, as the Blessed Mother said, you know, he has deposed the mighty from their thrones. And that's going to happen again. And it's happening now. And it's happening in God's way. And uh, I can testify that uh, there, there are Jews who have converted uh, because of reading the Jewish revolutionary spirit which was in many ways my intention. I, I, I always felt that uh, that's how I know I'll be successful. So there's a man, uh, I get emails like this on a regular basis. A man goes, he's flouting the rules in Chicago. He goes into the park and there strikes up a woman with a conversation and it turns out that she's an Israeli and he starts talking about uh, uh, the Jews, and then he mentions my name, and the Israeli woman says, yes, I've read the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Another person writing to you from the other end of the world in Asia is striking up a conversation, and this is a woman who's Jewish, but she's not Jewish anymore. She's become a Catholic because she read the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So all I'm saying is this is the way God works in history. It's small. It's not. Nobody's going to write articles about that because uh, they don't want you to know that. But it, it goes back to what St. Paul said. St. Paul said, when I am weak, I am strong. Well, the opposite is true. That means when the Jews are strong, they're weak. And this is the weak moment that they're going to suddenly realize that the power is eroding. That's that's what we're seeing here with this COVID crisis, with the internet crisis, with the loss of the narrative. When the when uh, the uh, no fap November took place, uh, Rolling Stone denounced it and called the people who were boycotting pornography anti-Semites. This is the type of of reversal that is happening as we speak. And this is certainly not a time to give up hope because that's what's happening right now. 
And I think a testament to what you're saying is that we are still talking now. We are having a conversation about this. I think over 1,500 people live are watching. So they've tried so hard to censor our ideas. I know they've dinged your YouTube channel. But here we are. And I think the ideas that you talk about that I help to spread are getting are getting out there. Now, what would you say to someone during these times, especially where all the churches are closed, people are stuck at stuck at home, their faith is weak. They believe in God, but um, maybe they've got caught up in the tricks of sex of porn. Uh, sex and so on. What what could you say to them? What advice could you give to them now, and how they can strengthen their faith? For I think a day of reckoning that seems to be coming. Yeah, I, I was taking a walk, and this black woman came up to me and uh, told me she wanted my to know if I had a cell phone, and then she said, "I'm going to call my mother. I'm going to kill myself." And at that point, she jumped over the railing and was standing on the ledge over the St. Joe river. And I said to her, uh, God has a plan for your life. I think that's what people have to realize that there is, that God has never stopped working in human history. Uh, but we become so sensual and carnal and blind that we can't see it anymore. And I said that uh, that was part of what I talked about then. I said, look, I could never have planned to meet that woman on that bridge at that moment. I, I, I didn't know her, didn't know where she was going to be there. If I left the house five minutes later for my walk, I would have missed her. And I don't know, she might have jumped in the river. She didn't jump in the river because uh, God's plan was to have us come together. And I told her there was a plan. And at the last moment, I said a prayer, and at the last moment, she cooperated with God's grace, and she got back on the bridge, and she's not dead. She didn't She didn't kill herself. That's how God's plan works. God it always, in the gospel, it talks about the, you know, the, the boat, and there's a storm, and it always seems at this moment of storm that Christ is asleep, that he doesn't care, that he's not there. That's not true. Not true. There's always a plan. You always have access to the plan as long as you're alive. If you accept the Logos in all of its manifestations. Well, I think it was God's plan for me to find you, too, towards the end of my uh, period of 18 years of thinking I was a Don Juan. So you provided the intellectual framework to know why I was doing the wrong the, the wrong thing. So I won't forget. I mean, I was the woman on the bridge too. So I'm glad that you were able to play that role for me. So let's talk about your books because I know you can't stay you can't stay for one of my epic 5-hour live streams. So the first book I wanted just to tell to the audience is this is the first book of Dr. Jones that I read. Dr. Jones, do you still find people encountering this book, Libido Dominandi, or what what effect has its ideas had in, I guess, the past couple of years? I think it's it's exposed the whole idea of sexual freedom uh, for the for the lie that it is. It's a form of control. I could, I, could, I could say that 25 years ago when I wrote the book and everybody just kind of rolled their eyes and we'll talk to you later about that one. But it took, what had to happen was a whole generation had to become completely addicted to pornography. And then I didn't have to tell them they were enslaved. They knew it. And all I had to do was provide the explanation. And suddenly some, some people simply because I provided the explanation suddenly understood what was going on and they stopped doing it. That That's the power of Logos. That's the power of reason, the power of explanation. You add to that the power of grace, uh, which is always there. A and you have the basis for a if what could eventually become a political movement that will basically take back the culture. I think that's what happened when uh, the book got translated into Polish. I was over there for the for the um, the book tour, uh, 
years later, I'm in Argentina. I get an uh, email from a Polish guy who says, uh, between your book and the Polish bishop statement, you destroyed gay marriage in Poland. If we have this type of solidarity between faith and reason uh, and people's lives start to clear up and they start to see clearly, I think that some type of political consequences will naturally flow from this. And I think the oligarchs know that too. I think that's why they're trying to nip it in the bud by preventing us from talking the way we're talking right now. Great. And the second book of yours that I read is The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Now, this book is for big brains only because it is, I mean, I couldn't understand, Dr. Jones, how you were able to just compile this. I mean, it has thousands of facts, historical references, on and on. It's about a thousand page book. Uh, this, we only today scratch the surface. I mean, we. I would say we got to maybe 0.2% of the book. This book will change your life. But first, you have to get your vices under control. Then once you get your vices under control with this book, then you understand where they come from <laughs> with this book. Okay, so you the new book that you have out, and it is here, Logos Rising. This is a book I've been waiting for for a long time. Can you describe to people what this book is and how does it maybe connect to the previous two books that I just, I just talked about? Yes. So I could not have written the Jewish revolutionary spirit without using the word logos. It is the center of that book. The Jewish identity is rejection of logos. And I had to use the word logos because it's the only word that conveys the, the depth. It's the Greek word for rationality. It's the only word that conveys that depth. And so after I launched that thesis and people started talking about the Jewish revolutionary spirit, they kept asking me about logos. What is it? What is it? And I kept coming up with an explanation. And I thought maybe I should write a history of logos. In other words, a history of man's understanding of ultimate reality. That's what, it's, that's what that book is about. And so instead of covering 2,000 years, I've covered all of time. Okay. The entire span of time from the moment of creation to the present. Uh, because what we're talking about here is being. And I had to talk about it in its most basic sense to talk about it because ultimately you either have your 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 feet firmly on the ground rooted in reality in contact with ultimate reality with being with logos or you don't and if you don't pushed around and the people going to push you around are known as scientists and we're watching that happen right now with the coronavirus they see their group of people saying, you got to do what I do because I know about molecular biology and you don't. Well, that's not, and this is judgments about people. Uh, uh, and and how, do you, how do you know that uh, what you're saying is right and what they, that's what the book is about. Now, I can't help it since you mentioned that. Are you satisfied with how churches have responded to this, whether Catholic church or any or any church? Uh, what, what do you feel is the response? Have they responded correctly? And do you think that maybe in the past they would have responded better? No, I'm not happy. Uh, I, I think that the, the so so uh, to get specific here, the governor of uh, Indiana uh, has said that uh, that people can go back to church uh, by the end of the month. Okay, that's what he said. The local bishop said, "No, we're going to go back on the twenty fourth, which is uh, a week from uh, this this Sunday, uh, which is good. I'm glad he I'm glad he said that. But you have to wear a mask to church. Well, I, I, this is this is ridiculous. This is not necessary." Uh, I think they are, the church needs to stand up to the state because we're in a situation now where the state is going to crush the church if it can. So to give you one instance, the New York, uh, the illustrious Solons 
of New York State under the direction of Governor uh, Cuomo have uh, removed the religious exemption for vaccines. Uh, you can see where they're going. You can see the brave new world that they're creating for us. It's a world where you're locked in your home and you can watch pornography, but you can't go to church, where abortion is an essential service, but worship is not. The church is going to have to wake up to the fact that this is warfare. This is the way warfare is conducted in our age. You know, Will they wake up? Got, I think they did in Poland. I think I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I think it happened in Poland, but uh, you know they have a stronger Christian culture. Ours, I've talked about, you know, Americanism being the the Achilles heel of the Catholic Church over here. They wanted they want to be respected by people who hate them. That's not a good idea, and it's not what the gospel tells us to do. We love our enemies. We don't uh, crave their respect. So since you brought that brought that up, I guess the last question I can ask you is, Dr. Jones, do you hate the Jews? I love the Jews because the Jews are my enemy. <laughs> okay, and great. And Jesus Christ said we have to love our enemy. So talk, don't don't ask me if I hate the Jews. Ask those those ladies, those Jewish ladies who read the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Did they come away from that book with a sense that I had this irrational hatred of them? Or did they come away from the se- with a sense that this guy has my best interest in mind because Logos is in my best interest and hatred of Logos is not going to help me at all? Ask them. Great. So uh, where can people find more of your work and where can they buy these excellent books? You can go to culturewars.com. Logos Rising, uh, uh, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Libido Dominandi, they're available on Amazon. Uh, Logos Rising is not available on Amazon. Uh, You have to go to culturewars.com. As soon as you click on there, you'll see the uh, order form and you can order books. We're sending them out all over the world now. We're trying to keep up with the orders, uh, problems with the mail service, but we're doing, we're, we're getting them out every day. It's good that you're not dependent on one of these big companies to get the word out. I, I the big companies would not do this. They would not publish my books. So, okay. so for those of you who like uh, the talk we had today and you want to buy Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, I would advise you to buy Logos Rise. And I know I'm saying that wrong, Doctor. I have a big hang-up on how to say say that word. But also by Logos Rising too. My next now, Doctor Jones, you're writing books faster than I can read them. But uh, I'm getting to Logos Rising soon, so I hope that you can come back on once I'm done with this, and we can have another excellent chat. I w- I do too. Great. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Rush. Okay, thank you, Doctor Jones, and stay at home. Wash your hands. Don't go outside, Doctor Jones. Okay. Okay. Now, bye bye. Peace.